Sometimes you see that I'm mad Don't you know no one alive can always be an angel When everything goes wrong you see some bad But I'm just a soul whose intentions are Produced at the studios of KBOO Radio in Portland, Oregon, this is Prison Pipeline. I'm Doug McVeigh. Prison Pipeline presents a unique perspective of the criminal justice system, addressing the root causes of crime and broadening understanding of the institution of incarceration. We seek to promote awareness and activism in order to foster a safe, healthy, and just society. My name is Wanda Bertram, and I am the communication strategist at the Prison Policy Initiative, which means that talking to journalists like you is my job. And I'm grateful to you for being with us today. Um, Your organization, Prison Policy Initiative, produces a lot of really great material. Tell me about this. Talk to me about this, 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 the whole pie 2022. Yeah, thank you. Um, We do this report every year, or at least we try. And we actually uh, didn't do the report last year in 2021 for the very first time. And the reason was that there weren't data uh, that allowed us to update it. What the report is, uh, is a pie chart that compiles the different sources of data about different ways in which we lock people up in this country in state prisons or federal prisons or local jails, because these facilities all have different data sources attached to them, right? They report their data in different ways. We compile them into a single report uh, and a single data visualization, which is a pie chart, to show just how many people are locked up in this country and where and why they're locked up in terms of what offenses they're locked up for. This is a, um, a report that allows us to answer some really common questions about the criminal justice system. Questions like, are you know, is everybody in prison in prison for a drug offense, or you know, a majority, or how many people are actually locked up in local jails and you know other local facilities compared to state-run facilities? Last year. What we found was that the data that was out there was really, um, basically it, it would have had us showing in the middle of a pandemic that prison and jail numbers were exactly as they were before the pandemic. And we knew that that was gonna confuse a hell out of people. That's just wrong um, because for reasons that I'll explain in a moment, prison and jail populations took a deep dive pretty early after the pandemic began. And we wanted to avoid confusing folks. So we didn't release it. And what that means is that this year, um, our new mass incarceration, the whole pie report, which compiles data from uh, anywhere from mid 2021 to late 2021 to February, 2022, depending on where it was coming from. And uh, this is the most recent and most comprehensive picture of mass incarceration that's out there. So if you and if you go to our website and if you go to the report section of prisonpolicy.org, you can find it yourself and, and take a look at it. It really is an enormous system, as you say. That it's really a series of systems, a set of you know, there's fifty different states plus the feds. Actually, could you talk about that for a moment? The 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 sort of the sort of network of facilities, the network of things that that make up this uh, this criminal justice system, really the criminal justice systems, I suppose we should say? Absolutely. Well, you know, I don't know how, how much attention, you know, the people who are listening 
listening to the show pay to criminal justice stuff, but you know, you might've heard about certain prison building that's going on in different parts of the country right now. For, for instance, if you're listening to the show, you might already know that there are two 4,000 bed mega prisons getting built in Alabama. Um, there's potentially a new prison getting built in Nebraska. There's probably a couple new prisons getting built in Georgia. And if you only think of mass incarceration in terms of prisons, then your understanding of you know what's kind of going on in this world is going to be exclusively prison based and one of the things that we try to bring light to in this report is that local jails are also a huge aspect of the criminal justice system um, somewhere between one and four and one and three people who are locked up on any given day in the u.s are locked up in a local jail and what's more the vast majority of new criminal justice related kind of facility construction that's going on in this country today is on a local level. It's where your city or your county says, we have an overcrowded jail or our jail is outdated, or you know, we want, they'll, just have to, they'll come out and say, we wanna build a new jail so that we can rent some beds to other counties that are close by. And so they undertake these massive projects of building a new jail. Um, new York City, where I currently live, is proposing to do this right now to replace Rikers Island with four uh, jails that are you know, around the city. Uh, Seattle, where I come from, is considering doing this with a youth jail. And so this is really happening everywhere, um, although actually it's, it's in the rural areas and the suburban areas where it's happening the most. And to go back to what you're saying, there's so many different kinds of criminal justice facilities that to look only at prisons misses the point. And that's kind of what that's that's one of the things that this pie chart that we have brings to light. Speaking of jails, that's one of the other I mean. 547,000 people in local jails. That's, of course, just a snapshot in time of the number of people who are in local jails because there's so much, there's churn. So many people are in and out. It's not, they're not intended to hold people for long periods of time. Used to be that they were just for up to a year. That was the rule of thumb. Jails held people who were sentenced to up to a year, but there are actually some places holding up to two, or people sentenced up to two years, which I guess is a way of trying to relieve prison overcrowding, just shove them into jails instead. The fact yeah, that that's exactly right. Yeah, that happened in California when the Supreme Court said, you know, California's prisons are too crowded. The state's response was in large part to move people who are in state prisons and still in state jurisdiction over into local jails where they serve the rest of their sentences. Um, so what you, uh, you know, if, you, if you've seen numbers that say, oh, the number of people in, in prisons has finally begun to drop, maybe that means that mass incarceration is over and is, you know, kind of shifting to be a thing of the past. Well, a lot of that drop is due to declines in states, you know, a handful of states, mainly California, where a lot of the drop in prison populations is actually has to do with people going to local jails. So uh, there, the other thing is that, you know, if looking at jails, what we see year over year is that a huge portion of people in jails, the majority, you know, distinct majority of people who are in local jails are there despite not actually having been convicted of a crime yet. And this year in 2022, two years into a global pandemic that has rendered local jails uh, extremely dangerous places to be because they are crowded and they are understaffed. Uh, and they don't have the capacity to take care of people who are suffering from a chronic health condition, much less COVID-19. Nevertheless, two years into this pandemic, there are about half a million people who are in local jails on any given day who are not convicted. Um, 
I don't want to draw the attention away from, you know, the fact that there are many people who are convicted who shouldn't be in prison and jail. But the, the fact is that bail reform and pretrial reform, you know, to get some people who are still legally innocent out of jails is more urgent than ever. And it's precisely at this time, you know, when this is becoming a super urgent policy issue that in many places across the country, um, conservatives or, you know, liberals that are effectively conservatives are, are introducing policies to push back against the reforms that have been done. Um, so that's, uh, that's something that, that is really pertinent, really pertains to this report that we have. And I can say more about that, too, if you want. Oh, please. <laughs> I could just please. go on about free trials all day. Actually, well, because well, yeah. honestly, that's one of the things about it. I mean, we the fact that we use jails to hold people pending trial, that's the whole thing with cash bail. If they can afford to get out, well, they, they do. And if they can't, they just stay. And so with courts being, I mean, courts are overcrowded in the first place, but with the pandemic, fewer and fewer trials can be actually held because we have to be more careful. And so people... I mean, people in jails will take a plea just so they can get out of jail, even if they never did the crime. Yeah, that does happen. People will be, you know, you'll be in jail and you'll be, you know, considering taking a plea or going to trial. And the, the longer you stay locked up in jail, the more appealing it becomes to just take the plea uh, and go home. Right. Because oftentimes if you've been in a jail long enough, you can basically just plea and they give you time served for the time that you've already spent locked up. So you don't go to prison. Uh, the sad thing about that is that people will leave jail and they have a criminal record. And in this country, a criminal record means that you don't have as much of a, as good of a shot at getting a job. And sometimes in, in certain places you can be cut off of disability or certain SNAP benefits, other forms of public assistance. Um, you can, you know, you might not be able to live uh, where you lived before because, you know, for certain, for instance, drug offenses where it's a crime um, to deal drugs close to a school. Okay, now, now you've been convicted of dealing drugs near a school and you can't live close to a school anymore. Uh, maybe you live in a city where basically every city block is within a thousand feet of a school. So you're extremely marginalized from a housing standpoint. My point is that the sheer act of, of obtaining a criminal conviction is enough to uh, render a lot of people uh, way more marginalized than they were already. Now, you mentioned drug offenses a moment ago, and of course, I I have a long history of working in drug policy reform. That's uh, that that yeah. that's how I got into criminal just the criminal legal work. system reform. Um, in a way, the drug offenses, nonviolent, um, the the nonviolent offenses, the, the the victimless crimes, they're really the low hanging fruit. It's an easy um, it's an easy argument to make, um, but. We've been making changes in drug sentencing, and there have been just just a reality of the uh, of the overcrowded system has forced some changes. I mean, it's we used to say, get rid of these drug crimes, and we can really do a lot for prison overcrowding and ending mass incarceration. That's not. We have to do more than just look at drug offenses now, though, don't we? Well, there's about you know I I think on the national level and uh, it's. It's about 40% of people in prison are there for some sort of violent crime. Um, and that, you know, uh, actually it's a little bit more than 50% are there for a violent crime. And what that does imply is that even if we got everybody out of jail and prison today who was serving time for a drug offense, you would still have many, many people left over um, that are serving time for more serious offenses. 
if you look at the sheer rates at which this country incarcerates people, you find that the US is so out of step with other countries that we're several times higher than even a country like Belgium that has similar rates of violent crime. And something that shocked me to learn was that even at the point in the pandemic when prison and jail populations were at their lowest because there were all of these gears in the criminal justice system process that got jammed and could no longer process people into facilities. Even when criminal justice populations were at their lowest during the pandemic, you still had a higher rate of people in the US going to local jails alone than the entire incarceration rate of any other country on earth. So take most, take, you know, take, take a sizable chunk of people out of prisons and jails, right? Cut out state prisons, cut out federal prisons, only look at local jails in the middle of a pandemic. Incarceration rates are still higher than any incarceration rate of any country on earth. That is, that is just how out of step we are. And if you think that we can, you know, fix that by simply doing reforms to the war on drugs, then sadly you're mistaken. This is my conversation with Wanda Bertram, communications strategist with the Prison Policy Initiative. We'll hear more in a moment. You're listening to Prison Pipeline. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. You've got this advocacy toolkit I've been looking at on your on your website. Um, tell me about this. Yeah, well, there's a lot of things that, that people can do. Uh, you know, every day there's an opportunity to get started working on working against mass incarceration where you live. Um, you can actually just start just by, you know, just by being aware. I know it sounds very, it's extremely uh, cliche to say this, but just by being aware of this, you can, you know, you can resist uh, the talking points from tough on crime elected officials in your area. And that makes a huge difference, right? Um, that's how you prevent things like bail reform rollbacks, which are going on in New York right now from actually taking effect. Um, people in elected office need to know that folks know that mass incarceration is a problem and that this is a, you know, this is, this is a, uh, this is a national shame and that we won't stand for it, right? And that's not the way that we want to respond to harm in the public space. Uh, getting back to your question, we have a new uh, resource that we released a few weeks ago, and it is primarily directed towards people who are already working on a campaign to end mass incarceration in some way, but it's probably useful for people in the public in general. It's called our Advocacy Toolkit, and it's a collection of uh, guides and training materials that will um, that can bolden or strengthen uh, your, any campaign that you have to end mass incarceration. It's comprised of things like uh, FOIA toolkit. So if you want to learn how to submit FOIA, Freedom of Information Act requests, uh, we have a, a guide to doing that. We have a guide to all of the data sources that we use. So if you look on our website and you go, I like those data visualizations, I like those reports, um, we have a guide that can help you make your own, tailored to whatever issue it is that you care about, or maybe to your state or to your county. We also have uh, some tips and tricks for making effective data visuals. Uh, and uh, we also have a couple, these are sort of standalone sections, but on certain issues that we have spent a long time focusing on and campaigning on, uh, namely prison gerrymandering, which has to do with redistricting. I'll explain that in a second, if you like, um, and opposing jail expansion. So exposing, or uh, sorry, uh, opposing the construction of new jail space in your county. We have, uh, we've basically comprised all of the lessons that we've learned from working on those issues and just put them into like a, you know, 
more or less a list of do's and don'ts for advocates. Um, so if you're interested at all in, in getting involved in the fight against mass incarceration, please do check this out. Uh, and even if you're, you know, even if you're already doing a campaign and you think, you know, this campaign is going really well, our, our toolkit is meant for people like you. Uh, it's meant to, it's meant to empower people with some skills that they may not have learned anywhere else. So, um, yeah, check it out. Um, prison gerrymandering is one that, um, I wanted to ask a bit more about. The issue of prison gerrymandering is an issue of political power, and it has to do with what happens when you have a criminal justice system that pulls people, uh, out of their home communities, sequesters them in large facilities, typically in areas that were not previously very populous, like rural areas uh, where prisons tend to be built. And then you draw new electoral districts around uh, those prisons in the same places where the districts have always been drawn. But now you count the people who are incarcerated there as legitimate constituents of those areas. Um, What that has done is it's had a huge impact on political representation at the state but also at the local level. And to just presuming that some of your listeners are in Oregon like you, I'll give an Oregon example. Uh, The city of Pendleton um, has a district uh, in it, so a city council district, where 28% of the constituents are actually incarcerated people. Now, what does that mean? That means that if you live in Pendleton, you're dealing with kind of a messed up uh, political system or electoral system. If you happen to live in the district that contains the prison, um, then you have uh, basically every 72 residents of your district have as much influence on Pendleton city government as every 100 residents of the other district. If you happen to live close to the prison, you have more, uh, basically you have more access to your um, to your representative in the city council than other people do. It's like if um, it's like if you know you and I, Doug, both lived in the same town, and uh, I was part of a city council district that included me and 100 other people, and you were part of a city council district that included you and 70 other people. That's not how our democracy is intended to work. The way that democracy is supposed to work is that every district contains roughly the same number of people, but. In these rural areas, um, in these counties and these cities where prisons are located, you're seeing um, mass incarceration have this distortion. Uh, and that's not even to get into the impact that it has on the communities that people tend to come from. So, you know, it's a huge, actually, I'll talk about uh, Illinois because Illinois, Illinois has it even in an even more dramatically pronounced way. Um, a huge percentage of people in Illinois prisons, which are upstate, uh, tend to come from uh, Chicago. So neighborhoods in Chicago that send a lot of people to prison, they lose those people as constituents. They don't have the same kind of uh, concerted electoral power. Whereas the uh, communities that have the prisons or the districts that have the prisons, they gain the electoral power because they they pull in those people as constituents. Um, it doesn't really, it, it almost never impacts funding amounts in any way, but it does impact people's ability to have a fair and a representative government. I talked to you before about one section on video visitation. I talked to you before about that with JPay and some of the other um, horrible things. Um, oh, this is a slight tangent, I suppose. But any updates? How are things going? How, how, how are um, any on the the JPay and um, and some of these um, awful awful uh, ways that we're just leeching money away from uh, people who uh, people who are stuck inside prisons or jails? Uh, I'm really glad that you asked this question about video calls because 2022, I think, is gearing up to be one of the most 
interesting and potentially the um, the most victorious years uh, that we've had so far in this fight against the prison industrial complex. And uh, to, to, to explain this a little bit, um, there are a variety of services, mostly communication related, that you can access if you're in prison, uh, like phone call, making a phone call to your mom or your dad, uh, or you know, sending them a text message, or like uh, buying something from the commissary, all of these services that are provided by private companies. And the reason that these services exist and the reason that they um, fleece millions, if not billions of dollars from incarcerated people and their families every single year is because the companies will kind of, they'll, they'll, you know, come up with this idea for a service to offer people in prison. They will market that service uh, to the prison system and they'll say, you know, you don't have to pay for the service. You don't have to pay for people in prison to make phone calls. We will charge the incarcerated people directly. And what's more, we will actually kick back some of the revenue that we make uh, to you, the criminal justice system. So now you have this extremely corrupt relationship at the heart of how criminal justice works today and at the heart of how prisons work today, where a lot of the money that is coming in to support prison and jail operations is coming via these revenue streams um, that are that are um, mediated by private companies. So, um, so really essential um, to the prison or the jail, really essential funding streams um, are, are being generated directly by incarcerated people and their families who just want to be able to make a phone call. And that's not right. You know, if you, if you think of, you know, if you think of things like family contact as, um, you know, a, a right and not a privilege and something that we should be, you know, should be giving to people in prison because it helps them stay in touch with their loved ones, then I think it should appall you that these things are being uh, leveraged for, for revenue to fleece money from the poorest people in the state. And I think it's also, you know, in, in my opinion, it's also an outrage from a, you know, just from a progressive economics perspective that we are, you know, effectively imposing this regressive tax um, on, on, you know, the, the poorest people in, in the nation um, saying you are going to fund the criminal justice system. Uh, so, yeah, so, so going back to what I was saying, the, this year you have six states that are considering bills to uh, fundamentally change how this works by saying the state is now going to pay for phone calls for incarcerated people. We're no longer going to do it where the families pay. Connecticut actually did this last year, so we've already had one state do this. It's proven it can be done. You're also seeing in a bunch of states uh, that have used the pandemic to cynically craft these contracts with uh, private companies to do other things like um, suspend in-person visits forever and say you have to pay for video calls instead, or uh, you know we're ending in we're ending uh, physical mail forever. Uh, you have to um, you have to use a tablet to send uh, to send e-messages to your loved ones instead. People are pushing back against this. Uh, it's really raising people's consciousness of how evil these companies are, and, and I think that's that that is something that is exciting to me because as more of you know as more people kind of get involved in these movements, that's going to in turn raise people's awareness of uh, of the criminal justice system and just how pervasive some of these uh, exploitative practices are. I'm really glad that you look at these um, practices too because I mean. Private prisons were a were a huge concern, and and they were always a small portion of the entire pie. But um, they were, you know, they're a big right. concern. And but it's not just the private prisons; it was the privatization of these services. I mean, with, you know, with the food, the health care. I mean, you, 
healthcare where the where the overwhelming concern is to save money. That's not healthcare any person should be subjected to, for heaven's sake. And that kind of privatization, I think, is what really slipped past people's radar. Um, so yeah, I'm just that's why I'm glad you you're looking at these things. I think that's that's a huge issue that. You know, I think people pay enough attention to. Yeah, it is huge. And, and just like you're saying, there's, you know, like 100% of people in prisons pay money to these private companies on any on any given day, right? So it's, you know, um, we, we really need to broaden our focus. If you're interested in the prison industrial complex, you've got to broaden your focus away from just the, the facilities that are operated by private companies and understand that the private companies have made inroads into the prison system um, in, a, in a big way. We're coming up close to the end of the show. Again, I'm speaking with Wanda Bertram, communication strategist with the Prison Policy Initiative. Um, what have I not asked you about that I should? Let's see. What have you not asked me about? Well, uh, let's see. We could spend a little bit longer talking about how um, in the whole pie this year, we show that there was a significant drop in prison populations between uh, 2020 and 2021 slash 2022. Again, we our PI report kind of has to pull data from different sources with different ages because we're pulling from you know data about all these different segments of the criminal justice system. But the long story short is during the pandemic, prison and jail populations fell. Now, most people think, uh, or many people think that populations fell because people in the criminal justice system, all of a sudden they grew a conscience and they said, we can't let people die in, uh, in prisons and in jails just because, you know, we, we, can't, we can't let a pandemic turn people's prison sentences into death sentences. And sadly, that did not really happen. What really happened, and we talk about this a lot in our report, is that the pandemic itself jammed the gears of the criminal justice system. It meant that a lot of people who worked in the system were, you know, they got sick, um, or they couldn't go into the office, so they couldn't go to work anymore. You had huge numbers of police officers who were basically um, they were they were off the streets because you know because they couldn't go to work. And you know, obviously, you also by their own admission, you also had a lot of police officers in 2020 uh, choosing to choosing to uh, work the protests rather than respond to any of the other calls that were going on. Uh, in the you know in, in the meantime, you have uh, jury trials, which were impossible to have in person when the pandemic was was still at its height. I hate to say the pandemic is over; it's not over, but when it was you know when it was still um, you know claiming a lot of lives every single day. When we were still really paying attention. Have to a, it. Yeah. When, that's right. That's yeah. <laughs> yeah. When we still when our when our elected representatives still thought that it was real. Um, you still had a criminal justice system that was not able to process as many people as it usually is. And as a result of that, uh, fewer people ended up arrested, fewer people ended up uh, in jail pre-trial, fewer people had their cases uh, closed or cleared, um, and fewer people went to state prisons. Now, what really stands out in this is that nobody really tried to make any of these changes for the sake of incarcerated people's health, right? Nobody was really like, you know, we we recognize that people have uh, a right to life, uh, and so we're going to change 
the way that the system operates for now. And we're going to look at ways that we could cut down on, um, you know, uh, we're looking, we're going to basically fix mass incarceration to the extent that we can as a public health measure. That didn't really happen, except in a few very isolated places. Um, and neither did you see an increase in people being released from prison. Uh, this really shocks me, but the number of people who were released from state prisons and federal prisons in 2020 was actually about 10% lower than it was in 2019. So the, the main thing that I want people to take away when they, if you know, if you go and you look at our new report, mass incarceration, the whole pie, what I'd like you to take away is like, there are fewer people in prisons and jails than there were, you know, three years ago. It's not because anybody grew a conscience. That was my conversation with Wanda Bertram, communications strategist for the Prison Policy Initiative. They're on the web at prisonpolicy.org. You've been listening to Prison Pipeline. This is Doug McVeigh saying so long. So long. Home regretting some little foolish thing, some simple thing that I have done. I try so hard, so please don't let me be.